Hey everyone. This episode marks the end of our first season of Clara Talks, centered around climate. We want to thank you so much for listening every week and growing with us as we investigate the climate of Cornell through various different lenses. Thus far, we've been analyzing how the COVID pandemic has caused this climate change of sorts. But for our final episode, we wanted to analyze how this year's Black Lives Matter movement and various acts of police brutality have shifted the racial climate of Cornell. Jack and I are both white men and want to acknowledge that we are here to amplify the voices that have experienced marginalization because of systems of white supremacy and privilege. We are treading into this area, trying to respect the stories and experiences of those who have felt this as best as we can, and ultimately with the gospel of Christ as our guiding light through these very challenging issues. All that to say, we hope you enjoy the final episode of the first season of Clara Talks. Hey, I'm Seth Bollinger, and welcome to Clara Talks, the podcast where we seek to articulate the truth of Christ to every person in every study across every campus. Today on the podcast, we'll be looking at the racial climate of Cornell through the stories and experiences of a few of our friends. On May 25, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic ravaging the world, a name suddenly skyrocketed into the public sphere with such force that the fragile American fabric would begin to pull apart. That name was George Floyd, an unarmed black man who died after a white police officer kept his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly eight minutes and 15 seconds. This incident of police brutality sparked a wave of protests, some riots, and conversations centered around racial injustice in America. The Black Lives Matter movement became part of the national spotlight again, even though it had started back in 2013 after the killing of Trayvon Martin. Terms such as white supremacy, defunding the police, critical race theory, and many others became part of the media vernacular, with some promoting these causes and some criticizing. America was forced to reconcile the experiences of persons of color with the feeling that racism was no longer a problem. I'm a white male who grew up in a predominantly white area. For the first time in my life, I was having conversations with others about these complex issues and began to realize how little I knew about racism, bias, and the evils of white supremacy within our culture, and surprisingly to me, the church. I began to read literature about these topics, wanting to understand more about this issue I had never experienced before. I wasn't alone in this endeavor either. I felt like there was a lot of language around it that we were getting from the media, but not a lot from our communities. Um, So, yeah, I just like knew that like there had to be a space like for these conversations to happen. Sophia Gion is an Asian American senior at Cornell and a friend of mine who decided to put together a book club dedicated to creating a space where students would come together to have conversations about race. This idea came from one of my really dear friends, Christina M, who, uh, yeah, literally called me out of nowhere sometime in quarantine and was like, "Hey, I have a really amazing idea." for Christian Union 
this book club thing that I did with my senior class in high school and it worked really well and I want to like try to implement it and like see what that would look like for Christian Union as a community um, to have a space where uh, people across gender, across class years, across, you know, races can come together and have conversations about race. Sophia and Christina chose a book that wove together the Black experience in America with Christianity, all told from the perspective of a mother writing to her young son. So the book that we read is called Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope by Jason L. Holmes. And it's about like what it looks like to grow up in America, a country with a lot of racial tensions as a believer. Uh, and so she gives a lot of advice about, you know, um, the tensions that exist politically between different people groups of, yeah, beliefs and opinions. Um, but it's really cool because she threads all those letters with, um, like, a truth about who, like, her son is. So, like, she'll title her chapters, like, you are God, you are beautiful, you are American, you are the church. And um, it's not that she's only writing to win, like, her son, but she's also writing to, like, the community of believers, of the brothers and sisters that she has. Sophia hoped to see unity between those who were participating in the club, but soon realized that her expectations of unity might not have been as realistic as she hoped. It's really interesting because I came into this book club with this grand vision of unity, right? Like, I just want to see people connected. But it's very, like, poofy. Like, it's very vague of a concept. You know, like, how do you, like, embody unity as people? of different colors. I think initially when I thought about like safe spaces, sometimes I would kind of hear that with like a certain level of um, not judgment, but like there's a certain type of connotation to the term safe space. And as someone who just like really want to see like a white person and like a person of color talk about race, like I think I was just like, no, like we need to have like all people like together in one room and talk about this thing, right? Um, but I think I actually like learned the importance of having a space for people of color and having a space for people um, that are white to like learn about race like in their own ways. Because in having created this book club, I realized that there are questions that will speak to non-white individuals more personally than like to white individuals. And it was actually like pretty difficult, I think, to try to get people to share experiences that were um, like really near to their own cultural identity um, because there's, a, there's like a certain level of vulnerability that comes with sharing your cultural um, intimacy. With this in mind, I asked Sophia how she thinks about the importance of storytelling when it comes to topics of race and inequality. The question caused her to think for a while. I think there's a reason why I'm like struggling with this question and it's because like throughout the semester this is like what I've been trying to get at with the people that would swing by you know the book club um because you know it was like not a mandatory thing necessarily it's like a thing that like if you have time to go on a Tuesday a Tuesday like you know evening then come through so to try to create 
um, this space where people were encouraged to share stories and yet not necessarily committed to that space, right? Um, I actually like thought it was really challenging to have people share about, you know, not just their thoughts, but about their lives. Even personally, I felt like there was like a certain level of boldness that I had to tap into to share my own story because sometimes I like literally had these memories in mind of you know the times where I felt like I really came to either embrace or hide my cultural identity and sometimes I wouldn't even like end up sharing that because I was just like ah this like feels a little too much you know. Sophia really described this well. When racial inequality was highlighted through large-scale activism in 2020, many people I know wanted to combat with so-called facts and downplay the experiences of millions of Black Americans. Black stories were amplified in the media, but creating spaces for storytelling within our communities brings many challenges. These stories are personal, and vulnerability is not something that can be taken lightly. Allowing our black brothers and sisters to open up about their experiences requires us, and by us, I mean white Americans, to listen and, more importantly, stand with them. Two of our friends were willing to talk about their experiences of being a person of color at Cornell, and the rest of the podcast consists of our interviews with them. Here's Jack with our great friend, Darius. I got a chance to catch up with Darius, a junior at Cornell. I scheduled our call for 10 a.m., which seems like a reasonable time, except for the fact that it's winter break. We were both a bit groggy during the interview. Sorry, my brain can't think this way. Darius is a black man and a long jumper on Cornell's track team. Some of his peers at Cornell struggle to differentiate those two things. And I can think of a few times when people I would be wearing normal clothes with a normal bag. And then a couple students would come up to me and ask me like, what sport do I do? Or something like that. And I'm like, I'm like, huh? Um, like I do play a sport, of course, don't get me wrong, but I didn't advertise it or anything. So I guess why was that like one of the first questions that would be asked to me um, in an academic environment. And I know a couple of other, other guys who are black males as well. Um, one of which is pretty tall. Um, and, and some people would ask me, like, what sport does he play? Stuff like that. He, he doesn't play a sport. He's a student. And I guess that's kind of hard for non-minorities, I guess, to wrap their heads around that there are Black students here who may look athletic, who may have an athletic build that are not athletes. Darius changes gears to reflect on how his race has influenced his experience in the Christian community at Cornell. Things like... You know, there's one race, the human race, things you commonly hear in Christian circles, or like, um, you know, just just feeling like, like there was this color blind color blindness um, in certain Christian circles, uh, and that kind of, I don't know, made it feel like my identity or like my culture and stuff like that didn't matter. Whenever I came into a Christian circle, it was just like we're all, you know 
one race, we're all, you know, the body of Christ, which is true. We're like, we're, we're all the body of Christ. But I think, I think what was missing is that there's a multiplicity to the body of Christ, you know, that we all bring something different to, you know, the group to the, um, the atmosphere and to the environment. While Darius has faced racial stigmas at Cornell, he faced worse at his mostly white high school in the South. Being called things like, you know, the Oreo or like he talk white or stuff like that. It, it just really confused me because um, I guess like, how am I supposed to act or how am I supposed to act, you know, black or whatever. So things of that sort, um, I guess prepared me I guess for what to expect at a PWI. It's kind of bad, but it kind of like thickened my skin, I guess. I guess to prepare for whatever comments. And I guess like, why would my skin need to be thickened um, when the comments shouldn't have been said in the first place or comments like these shouldn't be said in the first place? You know, why should I have to, you know, get a backbone and just, you know, deal with it, you know? Along with growing thicker skin, these experiences forced Darius to stand up for himself. I guess at one point I was just like, if like someone said a comment to me, eh, rub it off. But I guess I've developed like, you know what? Whenever something is said to me and it's rooted in a racial stigma, I'm going to say something. Because if not, someone else is going to receive those comments or I'm going to receive the same comments again. And that person will just keep, you know, will not, will, it won't they won't recognize their flaws and what they're saying. At various points throughout our interview, Darius expressed gratitude for role models who look like him. On the track team, I mean, our head coach is a black man and we have another um, member of the coaching staff who is a black man as well. So seeing them as like uh, role models are like reflections of me and uh, the coaching staff of the team that I was training in was a really good thing for me to have coming in as a freshman. I'm a part of Christian Community Church in Ithaca, um, at Ithaca College, where um, the pastor there is a professor um, who is a black man. Um, he's a pretty chill guy, his name's Dr. Christopher House. Um, so seeing him lead the ministry that I love to be a part of and just getting to know him and he, he would take me out to dinner sometimes and all that stuff. It's just good, you know, to have that reflection, those role models in high places like such. But Darius is skeptical that just elevating racial minorities to positions of power will solve racism. Representation in higher positions is really good to help with that. Um, ultimately, I don't think it can be the only um, tactic used. Um, I guess there has to be individual level communication. And I guess, like you said at the beginning, storytelling um, and stuff like that to, to help convey like, yo, like these racial stigmas that I guess that you've been carrying or these comments that you've been saying, they're, they're not okay. Here's why they're not okay. Like stuff like that, it's, it's gotta start a conversation. To give an example of why he thinks conversation matters, Darius tells his story of living at the Chesterton House, a Christian living learning center at Cornell that you may remember from the spiritual climate episode. No, this isn't a Chesterton advertisement or anything, but I'm just guessing um, the program up for this, but like we would tell stories every week, like I guess formally at dinner, um, but then just casually throughout the day, there would be somebody having a conversation about their experiences or and this or that. And then there'd be the interns that you could talk to. And 
I had conversations with, with the interns about my experiences and stuff like that. And just, it was really healthy for me because I, I had felt seen, you know, um, living at a space where I didn't really know if I'd feel seen at, I, I felt like, you know, yeah, I, I felt seen. I felt like, okay, someone understands, someone has a perspective into my life, um, you know, as a person of color. Darius concludes with a final appeal for storytelling. Because when we tell stories, we literally put the listener or the reader in our shoes and like let them walk in it for however long we decide to. Um, and there's power in that because there's emotion attached to that. There's experiences that carry that carry the emotions. Um, and however willing the lead, the, the, the speaker is willing to, the speaker or writer is willing to give, um, it could really change uh, the listener or reader's mindset on certain topics. I guess my experience being a person of color um, at Cornell, I guess depending on the uh, space. Kim is our blog editor at Claritas and is a senior at Cornell studying global and public health sciences. I got the chance to talk to her about her experiences as a person of color at Cornell. Um, I feel like for me, academic-wise, so I study global and public health, which in like division of nutritional sciences, which in and of itself is kind of like a bit more, I guess, like focused on like inequality and equity, um, just in global health. Um, and so in those academic spaces, I don't think I've ever personally really felt like um, me being a person of color or being a black woman has been effective. Like, I don't think like, yeah, in that sense, I don't think it's really made been as much of an impact as on me as in other spaces. And like, and I think like for the most part, like any moments or in incidences have been like directly addressed. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess I just think about how there was um, one time and for a major specific class I was taking sophomore year and the instructor, um, she accidentally called me the name of another black girl who I was sitting next to in the class or sitting near. And it was, it was very much so a moment just like, uh oh, <laughs> she just did that. Um, but then like the next class, she just like, apologize and kind of like not went on a spiel but was kind of just like very sincere apology <laughs> almost to the almost to the point where like me and the other girl involved we were just like okay it's okay just stop <laughs> and not not because we were like embarrassed by it but it was just like we were kind of just like it's it's fine kim mentions that most of the spaces she occupies at cornell remove some of the racial tensions she would feel in other settings. And I think that also goes into some, some of my extracurriculars as well. And that, again, is probably a product of like the extracurriculars or spaces that I take up. So like doing research, I'm doing research on like nutrition-based um, health equity. Um, specifically focusing on minority adolescents in New York City. Those are all things that like the 
focus is on equity and there's an emphasis on prioritizing the stories of people of color. And I think in those spaces, I've always felt like my perspective or my story or my what I bring to the table is, has always been valued and important. I think the spaces or the space that I felt the most um, like an outsider or hyper aware of my Blackness or being a Black woman has been in Christian spaces. I asked Kim if she would go a little deeper about this. As she collected her thoughts, it seemed that there were so many different places she could go when talking about her struggles in Christian spaces. Yeah, I think in Christian spaces, I think the biggest thing to me has been like, I don't want to go out and call them the lies that people say, but it's more like the fact that a lot of, at least the ones that I've been in, a lot of people in them, you know, they say that they love me or they care about me or they care about, you know, they love me as a Black person, they care about me in Black issues. And like, those are words and those are great, but like the actions following or the lack of action really does not really substantiate any of the words that they say, which is why I'm in a way calling them lies. I think one example would be, um, this was towards the end of my sophomore spring. It's almost become like commonplace to hear maybe once a month or pretty often that something violent or that an unarmed innocent person has lost their life um and so i think there was a point where like these tensions at least within this particular christian fellowship were like coming to head and i think people wanted to discuss it um and like um talk about it because i think it was getting to a point where it was like how how much longer can a whole group go on ignoring these problems without addressing them or addressing the tensions that are existing within the student body um, of this fellowship. And I think part of that has probably come because there were probably leaders in the fellowship um, who were hearing different stories, um, like different student experiences about their um, issues or tensions um, regarding race or Another focus of the conversation was like socioeconomic class. And I think they're kind of just like, okay, clearly there's a problem. <laughs> clearly something, this needs to be addressed in some way. So the idea was to have an open forum um, where basically the whole fellowship was invited to come to this open forum and just talk about things, <laughs> just, just talk about it. Like, and I guess it was more specifically to air it to like the ministry staff, um, maybe the student leaders as well, but also like, I guess like also just other people in the community, other white people in the community who probably at that point just didn't get it. <laughs> Kim transitions here and gives some of her perspective about how storytelling is only one piece of understanding the experiences of our fellow Black Americans. 
a big part of storytelling. I think storytelling is powerful, but it requires the people listening to one, listen with an open mind and show up. One thing that I noticed about that open forum was that like, I feel like the people who were there who weren't necessarily like people of color or maybe didn't necessarily come from a lower socioeconomic background, those people I felt like, well, these are the people that I would expect to come, you know? Like these are the people that I would expect expect to come because they have shown in the past how open they are to listening and wanting to be helpful in some way. So I think that's a big thing with storytelling is that like, I think storytelling is powerful. It can only, it can only go so far if people aren't willing to listen. So if people aren't willing to listen or willing to show up to listen, then like, who, who's going to hear the story? So where does this leave us? This season on Clara Talks, we've tried to analyze multiple different facets of the college experience through the lens of weather and climate, focusing on how large shifts in the short term might be affecting the long term of our school. Jack and I have tried to do this through stories from professors, Cornell's leadership, and our fellow students. I'm a big believer in the power of storytelling, like Kim mentioned earlier. But when it comes to the racial atmosphere in these settings, we need to adjust our framework. Racial inequality and police brutality are not merely weather patterns that formed in recent years. Racism in America is a climate issue in itself and has lasted for hundreds of years. Expecting it to change for the better just through telling stories of different experiences is naive at best, and at worst, harmful. Today we wanted to share the experiences of our fellow peers, not for the purpose of storytelling, but for the action of story listening. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his followers a parable about a sower. He sows his seeds in various places, and in each case, something happens to the seed as it tries to grow. Some seeds were eaten by birds, others were choked by thorns as they grew. Only one patch of seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Jesus concludes his parable by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says that the seed that landed on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. He then bears great fruit because of the word he heard. God's people are called to action instead of passive listening. The gospel of Christ is what compels us to action. What is this action to be? To find the lost, to care for the oppressed, to seek justice, to walk humbly, and to love mercy. He who has ears, let him hear, and let him act on what he has heard. There are so many resources available for those who are privileged to learn about the plight of our racial minority friends. There are many stories that people of color share vulnerably, hoping for somebody else to listen. But beyond listening, we must advocate and take action to end racism and bigotry in our country today. A racial climate change can come, but it takes all of us to begin to change the weather. 
Claritox is a production of Cornell Claritas, a journal of Christian thought at Cornell University. You can read our latest issue and explore our other musings and writings at www.cornellclaritas.com. Thanks for listening through our first season of Claritox, and stay tuned for season two coming this spring.